The moon is a muted shade of orange. Twin disks of light burn in the sky and the sea. I scan the darker indents in the skyline, the cloudless spots that I know to be caves. I check my watch again. It's eight o'clock, and all the bats have disappeared into the interior branches. Where is Maghreb? My fangs are throbbing, but I won't start without her. I once pictured time as a black magnifying glass and myself as a microscopic flightless insect trapped in that circle of night. But then Maghreb came along, and eternity ceased to frighten me. Suddenly, each moment followed its antecedent in a neat chain, moments we filled with each other. I watched a single bat falling from the cliffs, dropping like a stone, head first, motionless, dizzying to witness. Pull up, I closed my eyes. I pressed my palms flat against the picnic table and tensed the muscles of my neck. Pull up, I tense until my temples pulse, until little black and red stars flutter behind my eyelids. You can look now. Magreb is sitting on the bench, blinking her bright pumpkin eyes. You weren't even watching. If you saw me coming down, you know you have nothing to worry about. I try to smile at her and I can't. I find I can't. My own eyes feel like ice cubes. It's stupid to go so fast. I don't look at her. That easterly could knock you over the rocks. Don't be ridiculous. I'm an excellent flyer. She's right. Magreb can shapeshift midair much more smoothly than I ever could. Even back in the 1950s when I used to transmute into a bat two, three times a night, my metamorphosis was a shy, halting process. Look, she says, triumphant, mocking. You're still trembling. I look down at my hands, angry to realize it's true. McGreb roots through the tall, black blades of grass. It's late, Clyde. Where's my lemon? I pluck a soft, round lemon from the grass, a summer moon, and hand it to her. The verdelli I have chosen is perfect, flawless. She looks at it with with distaste and makes a big show of brushing off a marching ribbon of ants. A toast, I say. A toast, McGreb replies, with the rote enthusiasm of a Christian saying grace. We lift the lemons and swing them to our faces. We plunge our fangs, piercing the skin, and admit and emit a long, united hiss. Ah. Over the years, McGreb and I have tried everything. Fangs and apples, fangs and rubber balls. We have lived everywhere. Tunis, Laos, Cincinnati, Salamanca. We spent our honeymoon hopping continents, hunting liquid chimeras, mint tea and fizz, coconut slurries in Ohu, jet black coffee in Bogota, jackal's milk in Dakar, cherry coke floats in rural Alabama. A thousand beverages purported to have magical 
quenching properties. We went thirsty in every region of the globe before finding our oasis here in the blue boot of Italy at this dead nun's lemonade stand. It's only these lemons that give us any relief. When we first landed in Sorrento, I was skeptical. The pitcher of lemonade we ordered looked cloudy and adulterated. Sugar clumped at the bottom. I took a gulp and a whole small lemon lodged in my mouth. There is no word sufficiently lovely for the first taste, the first feeling of my fangs in that lemon. It was bracingly sour with a delicate hint of ocean salt. After an initial prickling, a sort of chemical effervescence along my gums, a soothing blankness traveled from the tip of each fang to my fevered brain. These lemons are a vampire's analgesic. If you have been thirsty for a long time, if you have been suffering, then the absence of those two feelings, however brief, become a kind of heaven. I breathed deeply through my nostrils. My throbbing fangs were still. By daybreak, the numbness had begun to wear off. The lemons relieve our thirst without ending it. Like a drink we can hold in our mouths but never swallow. Eventually, the original hunger returns. I have tried to be very good, very correct and conscientious about not confusing the original hunger with the thing I feel from a grub. I can't joke about my early years on the blood. Can't even think about them without guilt and acidic embarrassment. Unlike Maghreb, who has never had a sip of the stuff, I listen to the village gossips and believe every rumor, internalized every report of corrupted bodies and boiled blood. Vampires were the favorite undead of the Enlightenment, and as a young boy, I aped the diction and mannerisms I read about in books. Vlad the Impaler, Count Henrik the Despoiler, Goethe's blood-sucking Bride of Corinth. I eavesdropped on the terrified prayers of an old woman in a cemetery, begging God to protect her from me. I felt a dislocation then a spreading numbness as if i were invisible or already dead after that i did only what the stories suggested beginning with that old woman's blood i slept in coffins in black cedar boxes and woke every night with a fierce headache i was famished perennially dizzy i had unspeakable dreams about the sun in practice i was no suave viscount just a teenager in a red velvet cape, awkward and voracious. I wanted to touch the edges of my life, the same instinct, I think, that inspires young mortals to flip tractors and enlist in foreign wars. One night, I skulked into a late mass with some vague plan to defeat eternity. At the back of the nave, I tossed my mousy curls, rolled my eyes heavenward, and then plunged my entire arm into the bronze pail of holy water. Death would be painful, probably, but I didn't care about the pain. I wanted to overturn my sentence. It was working. I could feel the burn beginning to spread. Actually, it was more like an itch, but I was sure the burning would start any second. 
I slid into a pew, snug in my misery, and waited for my body to turn to ash. By sunrise, I developed a rash between my eyebrows, a little late flowering acne, but was otherwise fine, and I understood I truly was immortal. At that moment, I yielded all discrimination. I bit anyone kind or slow enough to let me get close. Men, women, even some older boys and girls. The littlest children I left alone. Very proud at the time of this one scruple. I'd read stories about Hungarian vampires who drank the blood of orphan girls and mentioned this to Maghreb early on, hoping to impress her with my decency. Not children, she wept. She wept for a day and a half. Our first date was at Cemeterio de Cologne. If I can call a chance meeting between headstones a date, I had been stalking her, following her swishing hips as she took a shortcut through the cemetery grass. She wore her hair in a low, snaky braid that was coming unraveled. When I was near enough to touch her trailing ribbon, she whipped around. Are you following me? she asked. Annoyed, not scared, she regarded my face with the contempt of a woman confronting the town drunk. Oh, she said, your teeth. And then she grinned. McGregor was the first and only vampire I'd ever met. We bared our fangs over a tombstone and recognized each other. There in a loneliness that must be particular to monsters, I think. The feeling that each is the only child of a species. And now that loneliness was over. Our first date lasted all night. McGreb's talk seemed to lunge forward like a train without a conductor. I suspect even she didn't know what she was saying. I certainly wasn't paying attention, staring dopily at her fangs. And then I heard her ask, So, when did you figure out that the blood does nothing? At the time of this conversation, I was edging on 130 I had never gone a day since early childhood without drinking several pints of blood. The blood does nothing? My forehead burned and burned. Didn't you think it suspicious that you had a heartbeat, she asked me, that you had a reflection in water? When I didn't answer, McGreb went on. Every time I saw my own face in a mirror, and I knew I wasn't any of those ridiculous things, a bloodsucker, a sanguina, you know? Sure, I said, nodding. For me, mirrors had the opposite effect. I saw a mouth ringed in black blood. I saw the pale sun of the villagers' fears. Those initial days with McGreb nearly undid me. At first, my euphoria was sharp and blinding, all my thoughts spooling into a single blue thread of relief. The blood does nothing? I don't have to drink the blood? But when that subsided, I found I had nothing left. If we didn't have to drink the blood, then what on earth were these fangs for? Sometimes I think she preferred me then. I was like her own child, raw and amazed. We smashed my coffin with an axe and spent the night at a hotel. I lay there wide-eyed in the big bed, my heart thudding like a fishtail against the floor of a boat. You're really sure? 
I whispered to her. I don't have to sleep in a coffin. I don't have to sleep through the day. She had already drifted off. A few months later, she suggested a picnic. But the sun! McGreb shook her head. You poor thing, believing all that garbage. By this time, we'd found a dirt cellar in which to live in Western Australia. When the sun burned through the clouds like dining lace, that sun ate lakes rising out of dead volcanoes at dawn, triple the size of a harvest moon and skull white, a grass scorcher. Go ahead, try to walk into the sun when you've been told your bones are tinder. I stared at the warped planks of the trap door above us, the copper ladder that led rung by rung to the bright world beyond. Time fell away from me and I was a child again. Afraid, afraid. McGreb rested her hand on the small of my back. You can do it, she said, nudging me gently. I took a deep breath and hunched my shoulders, my scalp grazing the center door, my hair soaked through with sweat. I focused my thoughts to still the tremors, lest my fangs slice the inside of my mouth, and turned my face away from McGreb. Go on. I pushed up and felt the wood give away. Light exploded through the cellar. My pupils shrank to dots. Outside, the whole world was on fire. Mute explosions rocked. The scrubby forest motes of light burning like silent rockets. The sun fell through the eucalyptus and Australian pines in bright red bars. I pulled myself out onto my belly, balled up in the soil, and screamed for mercy until I'd exhausted myself. Then I opened one watery eye and took a long look around. The sun wasn't fatal. It was just uncomfortable, making my eyes edge in water and inducing a sneezing attack. After that, and for the whole of our next 30 years together, I watched the auroral colors and waited to feel anything but terror. Fingers of light spread across the gray sky toward me, and I couldn't see those beautiful those colors as beautiful. The sky I lived under was a hideous lethal mix of orange and pink, a physical deformity. By the 1950s, we were living in Cincinnati, a suburb, and as the day's first light hit the kitchen windows, I pressed my face against the linoleum and gibber my terror into the cracks. So, McGregor would say, I can see you're not a morning person. Then she'd sit on the porch swing and rock with me, patting my hand. What's wrong, Clyde? I shook my head. This was a new sadness, difficult to express. My bloodlust was undiminished, but now the blood wouldn't fix it. It never fixed it, McGreb reminded me, and I wished she would please stop talking. That cluster of years was a very confusing period. Mostly I felt grateful, above-ground feelings. I was in love. For a vampire, my life was very normal. Instead of stalking prostitutes, I went on long bicycle rides with McGreb. We visited botanical gardens and rode in boats. In a short time, my face had gone from lithium white to the color of milky coffee. Yet sometimes, especially at high noon, I'd study McGreb's face with a hot, illogical hatred, each pore opening up to swallow me. You ruined my life, I'd think. To correct for her power over my mind. 
I tried to fantasize about mortal women, their wild eyes and bare swan necks. I couldn't do it, not anymore. An eternity of vague female smiles eclipsed my Magreds, my Magreb's tiny razor fangs, two gray tabs against her lower lip. But like I said, I was mostly happy. I was making a kind of progress. One night, children wearing necklace of garlic bulbs arrived giggling at our door. It was Halloween. They were vampire hunters. The smell of garlic blasted through the mail slot along with their voices, trick or treat. In the old days, I would have cowered from these children. I would have run downstairs to barricade myself in my coffin. But that night, I pulled on an undershirt and opened the door. I stood in a square of green light in my boxer shorts, hefting a bag of Tootsie Pops, a small victory over the old fear. Mister, you okay? I blinked down at a little blonde child and then saw that my two hands were shaking violently, soundlessly, like old friends, wishing not to burden me with their troubles. I dropped the candies into their into the children's bags, thinking, you small mortals don't realize the power of your stories.